Hello everyone and welcome. It's really good to be with you. I can't actually believe that this is the first time I'm going to be preaching this year, but I'm really excited to, to join you, whether you're watching this online or whatever time you're watching this, and it's great to be with those of you who are in person when we're in person. All right. Um, if you've been tracking with us, you will know that we've been doing a short thematic series in the book of Exodus, which we've called The God Who Sees. And so far, we've followed Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. We've seen him try and convince Pharaoh to let his people go. We've seen Pharaoh's stubborn refusal. We've seen God respond to Pharaoh with ten plagues, humbling him and the Egyptians and their gods. And then last week, Pastor Lata, he took us through God's Passover. And the judgment of God that simultaneously finally broke Pharaoh and his resistance and displayed the lavish grace of God over his people. So at this point in the story, the Israelites now, they set out from Egypt and they laden with blessings from their former masters. They went to the Egyptians and they asked for things and they were loaded with jewelry and with, with all kinds of things to take with them as they left. And they crossed the Red Sea. And as they cross the Red Sea, Pharaoh comes after them and the sea closes in on Pharaoh and destroys all of the Egyptians. And there's an ocean of water that prevents their oppressors from coming after them any longer. I want to ask you just for a moment, just, just consider that. Consider what that sea represents. Because remember, in Exodus, the whole story of Exodus is a foreshadowing. It's a, it's a prelude. It's a picture to the redemption that we find in Christ. The, the salvation that the people of Israel received through Moses and their extraction from Israel is a picture of the redemption that we now get in Christ. And so God put this ocean, this impenetrable ocean between his people and those that they've been and the place they've been rescued out of. Just think what that means for us and our salvation in Christ. Anyway, that's not the point of today, but something beautiful to think about. Exodus 15 is then given over to almost completely to the song of praise that's sung by all the people, by Moses, the people, and then Miriam has a song, and all of them are offering praise and glory to God. And it's at this point that we're going to pick up the story for our message today. We're going to read quite a chunk of scripture. We're going to go from Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, to Exodus chapter 16 and verse 31. But it's all, it's all one story. And, and we're going to pick three themes out of this passage. There's probably more that we could do, but we're going to stick with three. And we're going to look at it together. So let's read together from God's word. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea. They moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and they turned against Moses. What are we going to drink? They demanded. And so Moses cried out to the Lord for help and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. And Moses threw it into the water and this made the water good to drink. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all of his decrees, then I will not make you to suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So after leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis at Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. They camped there beside the water. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin, 
between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots that were filled with meat and we ate all of the bread that we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I am going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. And I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they will gather food and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, By evening you will realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your complaints, which are against him, not against us. What have we done that you should complain about us? Then Moses added, The Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning, for he has heard all your complaints against him. What have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord and not us. Wipe my hands. It's a little bit like Pilate, right? Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Announce this to the entire community of Israel. Present yourselves before the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness, and there they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in a cloud. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp. And the next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. And when the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. And the Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, it is the food the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel, they did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some gathered only a little. But when they had measured it out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. Then Moses told them, don't keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. And by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. And Moses was very angry with them. After this, the people gathered the food morning by morning, each family according to its need. And as the sun became hot, the flakes that had not been picked up melted and disappeared. And on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts for each person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. He told them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath set aside apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. So they put something, some aside until morning, just as Moses has commanded. And in the morning, the leftover food was wholesome and good without maggots or odor. Moses said, eat this food today, for today is a Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather food for six, six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground on that day. So some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. And so the Lord asked Moses, how long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. 
That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day, so that there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. So the people did not gather any food on the seventh day. The Israelites called the food manna. It was like white, it was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like honey wafers. May the Lord bless the prolonged reading of his word. All right, let's dig in. I want to pick up three themes from the passage that we've looked at together today. And the first is this. How do we respond to God's grace? Because the first thing that's shockingly obvious in this story is the provision of God and the grumbling and discontentment of the Israelites. At Morrow, they're understandably thirsty. They've walked for three days. Their water supplies have run out. They need more water. It's, it's a life and death situation. But they come to Moses and they, and they grumble. Right? And the immediate response, the text tells us, is to turn against Moses and complain to him. The implication clearly being that this is Moses' fault. He should have known better. He should have left them in Egypt. So Moses turns to the Lord and God provides him with a solution. Throw the stick in the water. There you go. Problem solved. Job done. It wasn't hard. Got it covered. So the Israelites are happy. The water is drinkable. And after a little while, off they go to the oasis of Elam. And Elam turns out to be a better oasis than Mara. There's no problems with the water there. So our story doesn't linger there. They set off again. They arrive in the wilderness of sin. Now, just a quick note that the wilderness wasn't sinful. Right, the idea of the wilderness of sin isn't connected to our English word sin. It's connected to the word Sinai, which is why you see sin there. All right. But the first description we have of the activities of the people in the wilderness of sin is complaint. Again, remember these words? If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we had these huge pots that were filled with meat and we ate all the bread that we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. I mean, come on, Moses. I mean, you know, they were no longer free people in Egypt. They had no rights and they lived according to the whims of their Egyptian masters and they worked to the bone and they had no hope or any future. But, but they have food, at least, right? Which, which must be better. And if you remember two weeks ago, Roland warned us, that the heart and the response of Pharaoh to God's plagues, which we saw in chapters 5 to 11, that, that heart response was recorded for us as a warning. It was to warn us not to harden our own hearts like Pharaoh did. I want to say to you, the behavior of the Israelites here fulfills the same function. It shows us something about the tendencies of human nature that we all need to struggle against. These people, these Israelites, are, they're individuals. They have seen a greater revelation of the majesty and the power of God than any other generation. They have seen God rain fire down from heaven. They've seen him turn rivers into blood. They've seen him strike down the sons of Egypt. They've seen God turn off the sun. They have walked through an ocean with walls of water on either side as God held it up. And yet they have no faith to believe that God can provide for them in the desert. These Israelites display for us the temptation that we each face every day. It's the challenge to see the problem that is before us now as bigger than the God that we follow. 
And when you consider the revelation that these Israelites had, it seems ridiculous to contemplate that they couldn't trust God for food in the desert. But friends, I want to say, let's not be too quick to judge them. Because we can often succumb to the same fault in our human nature, where we allow the immediate problem, the thing that's in front of us that seems so big and insurmountable, to dwarf the greatness of our God. And we forget the work of our God. How often has God proved his faithfulness in your life in the past? How often has he shown you his goodness as you have followed him? Whatever you might be facing now, and I don't know what it is. Many of us face big and difficult things. Whatever you might be facing, the same God is by your side. Don't respond like those in the wilderness. Learn from them. Learn from your own mistakes in the past. Choose to believe that the God who sleeps in the bow of the boat can calm the storm. Trust in him and he will see you through. That's the first lesson from the story today. First theme we're going to pick up. You ready for the second theme? Here it is. All right. Obedience, disobedience, and stubbornness. Starts a little heavy. Okay. Verses 25 to 26 of chapter 5. The Lord makes the statement. He says, It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. It says, If you will... Listen carefully to my voice and do what is right in my sight. If you will obey my commands and keep all of my decrees. That's God's, that's, that's the if, right? Here's the when. Then I will make, not make you suffer any of the diseases that I sent on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. So after rescuing them, the Israelites from the pursuing Egyptians, taking them through the Red Sea, cleansing the water at Marah, the Lord presents this test to Israel. Will you listen to me? Will you do what I say? Listen, do. That's it. That's the test. Do you remember how well they did as we read the story? Do you, do you think they passed? All right, let's refresh quickly. A couple of verses from chapter 16. Moses told them it is the manner... It is the food that the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs, two quarts for each person in your tent. But don't keep any of it till morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. But it was then full of maggots and had a terrible smell, and Moses was very angry with them. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts for each person instead of two. So Moses told them, bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. He said, eat this food today, for today is a Sabbath dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather the food for six days, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. Well, some of the people went out anyway on the Sabbath day, but they found no food. And the Lord asked Moses, how long will these people refuse to obey my instructions? How well do you think the people did? See, immediately after God sets his test for Israel, they fail as a community. He gives them two very simple instructions. He says, every day, gather enough for each person. Cook it, eat it, but don't keep any of it. But on the sixth day, on the sixth day, gather twice as much. Cook and eat what you need for that day. Save the rest for tomorrow. Don't look on the seventh day for food. There's not going to be any. I gave you enough yesterday. And yet on both counts, there are some in their number 
that fail to adhere to these simple instructions. So this is a very simple observation to make from the story. It's, you know, you don't need a theological degree to recognize how Israel failed in the story. But there's some interesting implications that I think are worth teasing out for us. And the first, the first is this. The disobedience of some caused great anger both to Moses and to the Lord. Now, we know, many of us who have been Christians for some time, we know the importance of obedience to God is well established and it's well reinforced in the Old and New Testaments. Jesus, in John chapter 14, says something very simple. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will listen to me. If you love me, you will do what I say. Just before his ascension into heaven, he gives the 12 one final commission. Right? We know it well. Go into all the world. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Obedience is well established in the scriptures as something that delights God's heart. God values obedience. Obedience demonstrates our love for God. Belief without obedience is like faith without works. It's dead and it's useless and God has no time for it. Well, Exodus shows us God's heart when we respond in disobedience. Verse 28 reveals to us how God feels when his people fail to trust him. They fail to listen to his instructions. It gives us insight into the exasperation and the frustration that God experiences in our disobedience. And if you play the story of Exodus right through to the end, you'll notice that the people of Israel fail to enter the promised land because of their disobedience. See, God withholds his goodness from them because of their inability to trust and to obey what God has called them to. So the disobedience of some Israelites gives us insight into the effect that our action or inaction can have on the heart of God and ultimately then how God chooses to deal with us. But it also gives us, and this is really interesting, it gives us insight into our own hearts. It discloses that innate stubbornness and pride that wants to learn by experience. Now, experiential learning is something that's well established in academic circles today. It's one of the most beneficial methods of learning and has great value when it's used appropriately, right? Hear me. But the story exposes for us, it exposes for us the dark side of experiential learning. It exposes that tendency we have to prefer learning from personal experience to learning from others, or in this case, in learning from God. It exposes our arrogance that desires to test the boundaries that have been set for us and imposed on us by others. It, it, it to presume that our experience trumps the reported findings of others. And ultimately, this experience, it, it embodies a lack of trust in authority and an elevation of self-perception. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Experiential learning is good, right? It's not wrong in and of itself. It's actually a very good thing. But there can be subtle thoughts that can begin to attach themselves to this type of learning paradigm which particularly when those thoughts infect our relationship with God can be very dangerous. Because ultimately our relationship with God is about trust. It's about believing without having to test. It's about knowing that when God says, don't climb this mountain or you will surely die, the right and the godly response is to say, sure, God, I'm not going to climb the mountain. It's not to think like the serpent in the garden said, hey, we wouldn't surely die. Like God wouldn't do that. When God says, do not commit adultery. 
our thought shouldn't be, hey, how, how far is too far? Like, how far can I go towards adultery before I cross the line? Rather, we should be thinking, yes, Lord, help me. Give me grace, God, to honor my spouse, to honor you. That's how God desires us to relate to him. So ultimately, the story highlights for us how we can sometimes test God by choosing to value our opinion over his opinion. And I want to encourage you, for your own sake, to do that as little with God as possible. I want to encourage you to instead ask him to give you a heart and a mind that is in submission to him, that faithfully and obediently responds to his voice when he calls you. And then your life will be one that pleases him rather than one that vexes him. Okay, that's second theme. Third theme, final theme that we're going to look at today, the Sabbath. All right, we're going to, we're going to pick up on the introduction of the Sabbath that we find here in chapter 16. Now, the Sabbath is a concept and a theological reality that we could easily do a series on in and of itself. Right, but this passage in Exodus 16 is actually the first time the word Sabbath is used. And it's the prelude to the introduction of the fourth commandment that we're going to find four chapters later that Howard's going to pick up next week. And so it actually forms an incredibly important part of this passage. And I would suggest it still has important implications for us as Christians today. So let's look at the Sabbath. And we're going to do it in four different ways. We're going to look in four contexts. We're going to say, what is, what is the Sabbath doing in this passage in Exodus chapter 16? Right? What place did the Sabbath begin to occupy in Israelite culture? How does Jesus affect the Sabbath for us in the New Testament? And finally, what wisdom does the Sabbath carry for Christians today? All right. And I'm going to answer these questions quite broadly and, and briefly because we don't have the time to, to answer them deeply. Um, but they're good questions to ask and there are some good answers out there. Let's begin here, Exodus chapter 16. Why does God choose this moment to inaugurate the Sabbath? Well, let's look at what the text says. Right? What do we see about the Sabbath in the text? Verse 23, he told them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. Verse 25, Moses said, eat this food today for today is a Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. Verse 29. They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. That's why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day, so that there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath, each of you must stay in your place. <clears throat> the text here in Exodus chapter 16 gives us three important aspects of the Sabbath. Firstly, the Sabbath was a day of rest. The meaning of the Hebrew word Shabbat literally means to cease from work. That's why on this day, the Israelites could not go out to gather food or to cook food. God mandated that they rest. Secondly, it was a holy day. It was a day that was set apart and dedicated to the Lord. I want to share this with you. Do you know the first time that the word holy is used in the scriptures? It's used to refer to the seventh day. The first thing that God refers to, that he proclaims as holy, it's not a place, it's not an object, it's not a person, it's not an animal. It's a time. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Just think about the significance of that for a moment. God created hallowed time. He created hallowed time, sacred time. There's something we're going to want to pick up on in that idea as we go on a little bit later. Exodus chapter 16 shows us that the Sabbath finally was God's gift to mankind. It's the third part. Let me put it another way. The Sabbath was given for the sake of man. God didn't need the Sabbath. He gave it to us as a gift, as a blessing, as a means of grace from our King. That's the outline. That's the picture of the Sabbath we get here in Exodus chapter 16. Let's go a little further afield. Let's, Let's go a little forward into the future, as it were, into the history of Israel and how the Sabbath functioned in Israel. Because as Christians, we're often a bit unfamiliar with the significance of the Sabbath in the life of a Jewish person. But I want to tell you, the Sabbath was the central pillar of the Jewish faith. It was the cornerstone and the focal point of their religion because God had structured it that way. For us today, generally speaking, Sunday forms the last day of our week. It's like the end cap, the wind down, the closing day to our weekly cycle. But for the Jewish people, the Sabbath was the climax. Your week built up to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the high point of your week. It was the day everyone talked about. It was the day everyone looked forward to. But even more than that, it was the day around which your whole faith was structured. It was a pattern that God began in creation, working for six days and declaring the seventh to be a holy Sabbath. Weeks were recorded by the passing of the Sabbath. Festivals were tracked according to the number of Sabbaths that had passed. See Leviticus 23. Years were tracked in groups of seven, where every seventh year was a Sabbath year, and the land was allowed to rest. And then after seven Sabbath years had passed, we get the year of Jubilee. This was the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It was the 50th year. The year of Jubilee regulated the price of the land. It regulated the cost of rent. It regulated the interest rate, the indenture of servants. servants. It eradicated debt. The whole structure of the Jewish faith is orchestrated around the concept of Sabbath. Sabbath was to the Jewish people a hallowed palace of time. It was a sacred time. It was a a holy rhythm that governed the activities and the lives of all Jewish people. That's what the command in Exodus chapter 16 anticipates. That's what gets established in the nation of Israel over time. Let's jump to the New Testament. Let's go a little bit forward. Let's ask the question, what? What role does the Sabbath have in the New Testament? How does it feature in the New Testament? To do this, we'll survey three scriptures, right, rather briefly. The first one is in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. It says, One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisee said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abithar was the high priest, and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of the bread that only the priests are allowed to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, this is the important part for us today, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, 
even over the Sabbath. And whilst there's so much that we could talk about here, let's just focus in on a few of the essentials in the last two verses. In verse 27, Jesus makes clear that the purpose of the Sabbath is in reaffirming what God said in Exodus chapter 16, that the Sabbath was a gift to mankind. It was meant to be a blessing to us, not a burden, which it had become in Jesus' day with the Pharisees. In verse 28, Jesus claims to be Lord over the Sabbath. In other words, whilst the Sabbath is holy and it is holy, Jesus is still Lord over it. He is greater than it. And it reminds me of this analogy we find in Hebrews chapter 3, where the author of Hebrews, he says, a house deserves glory. It's beautiful when it's finished being made. But the builder of the house deserves more glory than the house itself. Whilst the Sabbath is beautiful and glorious, Jesus is more glorious and he is worthy of more honor. He is Lord over the Sabbath. Another really significant passage in the New Testament on the Sabbath is in Colossians chapter 2, from verses 16 and 17. Paul is writing to the Colossian church and he's counseling them on the freedom that, they, that Christ has won for them. And he says this, he says, Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. His statement here is massively significant because it refutes in the strongest, clearest terms any attempt to maintain the binding nature of the sabbatical covenants, like we found in Exodus chapter 16 or 20. But it shows how these signs, these pictures, these images that foretold Christ, that that led us towards Christ, have been fulfilled in Jesus, and that Jesus is our new Sabbath rest. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. These words get confirmed in in the book of Hebrews where the author writes it and he spends two chapters really unpacking this. And we'll just take a snippet in Hebrews chapter 4 from verse 8. It says, Now if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, the people of Israel going into the promised land, God would not have spoken about another day of rest that was still to come. So, and catch this, there is a special rest that is still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter into that rest. This passage speaks about the rest that we find in Jesus, both now and eternally. It confirms Paul's contention that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and that in him we find the rest that God desires us to live. So what does that mean for us day to day? Is the Sabbath no longer of any import then because it's been fulfilled in Christ? That's what leads us into our final question. What role does the Sabbath have for Christians today? What is the wisdom of the Sabbath for today? Because whilst the Sabbath commands are no longer binding on Christians, and whilst there exists a greater rest that is available in Christ, I want to suggest to you that there remains wisdom in the rhythm of Sabbath that God created. Because remember, the Sabbath was created as a gift for us. That was its purpose. God created in Israel a society that was centered around frequent, consistent times of rest, times that were to be set apart, times where work ceased, and God's people re-centered themselves on their Creator. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel 
had a weaker relationship with God than we do. What I mean by this is for the majority of them, they required a priest or a mediator to help them connect with God. They did not have the Spirit. But today we enjoy Jesus as our high priest. And the Holy Spirit has been directly joined to our spirit so that they are with us wherever we go, wherever we are. And it's this beautiful joy that we have under the new covenant. And yet we also face unprecedented degrees of distraction and pressure. Burnout is becoming more and more common around us. Can we afford, friends, not to take advantage of the pattern that God has set before us? Can we afford not to live out of joyful rhythm rather than legal requirements? And, And if we choose to create rest in our lives, our experience of it can be so much deeper because of what Jesus has done for us. Because being in him brings a rest that goes beyond simply not working. But it brings a rest that restores our soul. I want to encourage you to, to make rest a time that is set apart to not work and to enjoy the presence of Jesus, a regular part of your life. I believe it's how God designed us. And I believe that we flourish when we live out of that design. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you and I bless you, Lord, that you are such a good God. You love us so deeply. We thank you, Lord, for your word, that we can study it together. That we can do that even as we are online or in person. We bless you, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would give us grace to remember your actions in our lives, to remember your work in our past. And if we are facing storms right now, Lord, if we are facing challenges, if there are obstacles before us that seem insurmountable, Lord, I pray you give us grace to trust in you, to learn from your work in our past and to believe that our God is able and our God is still with us and he is still working and he will bring about his kingdom in our lives. Give us grace, God, to trust you for that. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to to grow in our faith and grow in our ability to listen to you and to hear your voice and to step in obedience. Where you speak to us through scripture, Lord, may it not just be about gaining knowledge and learning more. Won't you drive us, God, and move us to living it out and doing something about it in our lives, I pray. Help us to resist our own evil desires that would cause us to follow our own thinking and give us grace, God, to follow you as you lead us. Lord, help us, I pray, to maintain and establish a good rhythm of rest with you, Jesus, in our life. God, you know how busy our lives are. We thank you that for some of us, this pandemic has created a space to slow down. But I I pray, Lord, for all of us that you would help us to establish rhythms that are good and godly in our lives. That create and allow rest to permeate who we are. Not to be lazy. Not to to be unwilling to do that which you've called us to, but to center ourselves in you and to dedicate time that is given over to resting and to you. I ask this, Lord, in your wonderful name. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today. May God bless you as you go into the week ahead. Until next time. Bye-bye.